I'm Eddie Rowley, and you're listening to My Country Life, a podcast that takes you backstage and into the real lives of Ireland's country music kings and queens. Each podcast in this series features a country star opening up the doors to their past and taking us on their personal journey into the spotlight. Along the way, they reveal their highs and lows, happiness and heartaches, and their struggle to find success. Here we meet country music superstar Daniel O'Donnell, who in a glittering career spanning 40 years has lived a charmed life, achieving fame and wealth beyond anything he ever imagined. He has counted his own idols of American country music among his friends, including Loretta Lynn and Charlie Pride. One of his biggest influences was Cliff Richard, and Daniel went on to forge a close friendship with the British pop legend. He has sold out concerts at iconic venues that include the Point Theatre, now the Tree Arena, here in Dublin, London's Royal Albert Hall, Sydney's Opera House, and New York's Carnegie Hall. In America, he is also the biggest attraction in Branson, Missouri. Daniel has had more albums in the British charts than any other recording artist. And Prince Charles presented him with an MBE for his services to music and charity. It's an astonishing true life story that is the stuff of movies. And it all began in the fishing village of Kincastle, County Donegal, and on nearby Oi Island, as he now recalls. So welcome, Daniel, to My Country Life. Thank you, Eddie. I thought yeah. that was somebody else you were talking about there. <laughs> <laughs> it, is quite, it is quite an achievement, uh, what you have done um, all those in all those amazing uh, shows you've played all over the world, from the Royal Albert Hall to uh, Sydney Opera House to Carnegie Hall. I know. Uh, it's yeah, you know, it's, it's funny when you look back at all the things. Sometimes I, um, in a quiet moment, and we've had a few quiet moments this past, you know, eighteen months or so, and you know, you think, did I really? experience those things what did they happen i can i can go and my mind to standing in the in the dressing room in sydney opera house and the dressing room looks out on circular quay and i was thinking imagine all the people the singers or musicians or whoever they might have been that stood and looked out this window and again and then out on the stage. It's amazing when you think in these places. The one place, I suppose, that really struck me was when we did Carnegie Hall. Um, I went out on the stage, and there's a family from our village, the Logue family, and a lot of, six of them, emigrated to America and lived there. And they were all in the front row. Well, five of them, I think, were in the front row. And I was thinking, how did I get here? And it would just kind of, when I saw them, it kind of made me emotional, you know. And I thought, now get a grip of yourself. But it's it's quite amazing to yeah. have. So, and they came obviously from Kincastle. Yeah. And that's where it all started for I you. Yeah. And it's it's remarkable because you, you came from quite a poor background, no different to anyone else in Ireland yeah. at the time, but still a very poor it background. It wasn't, yeah, we were no better or worse off than... The majority of people, I think at that time, we thought the doctor and the priest and teachers were on a different plane to us. Now, I don't know if people will agree with me there, but that's kind of what we felt or what I felt. Maybe not everybody felt that even in my village, but that's what I thought. I remember thinking we called the... Nobody, in Donegal or certainly in our area, people don't get called Mr and Mrs, even by young people, which I think it's a respect thing outside uh, in other parts of the country where they'll call Mr and Mrs so-and-so. The only ones that were called was Mrs the Doctor, and they called, like, one of the teachers was Huey and the other was Jim. They called the wives Mrs. Huey and Mrs. Jim. Yeah. Isn't that strange? Yeah. Not by the... Well, certainly I never... I didn't even know what some of their first names was, you know, growing up. Um, but, you know, the area was, was very rural 
Um, I mean, it's still very rural where, where we live. Um, everybody knew everybody, and I think everybody was more or less in the same boat, you know. Um, but it was a lovely place to grow up, uh, you know, very, very... I think the community aspect of it, and, you know, for, for the most part, still is there. Um, I, I know life is busier uh, in general, and people are more occupied with... Um, things that maybe were not a factor when we were growing up. Life was slower. But I still think that the community spirit is still in our area. And you notice that when things are not right for somebody. Yeah. You really see it rally big time. <laughs> but um, no, I feel very, you know, very blessed to have been brought up where I was in Kincastle. And your mother was from... And she was an island woman. My mother was from Owe Island. Owe Island's about, it's only about 10 minutes, you know, off the coast, off the bottom of Critch Island, um, which is a bridge on to Critch. And then Owe is just, it's between Aranmore and Gola, and Tory Island is further away on the coastline, but very close to Aranmore, a small wee island that the people lived there up until the 70s, they, the last people left. And now the houses are nearly all refurbished again with people using them more in the summer. I suppose very few go in in the winter or maybe almost nobody, but they use them throughout the summer. And we actually have a wee house there that belong Magella's more involved in it than I am. She's renovating it at the minute. And um, it was actually my grandfather's sister brought her family up in this house. Wow. And I suppose ironic then that we both of the of her grandchildren, her eldest son lived in it, and then their children, his children, the other was seven of them, I think, in that, and they were out of the island and were going to sell the house. So we ended up buying it. So and you spent a lot of time on the island. We go over as a children, as a child. Yes, I went over. Yeah. My grandmother, you see, lived there. Uh, with my my el my eldest my mother's eldest brother and his family, they were brought up there. My cousins, so they own that house and they have renovated that house beautifully. It's it's gorgeous, and um, so I have great memories of going over to the island, and everything. You know, when I go back in my mind to the island, and when I go on now, and I maybe say to somebody, the school was like the little house in the prairie. Everything, as well as teaching, we, I remember, going over at night time to the school. And I don't know was how regular, you know, what you're, as a child, your memory is, is clear but hazy. Um, it's clear that we went to the school and we would dance to, now I was wild small, but if we're still dancing, <laughs> um, to the radio. You know, up until... Right. See, that time there was shows on at night, music shows, and they were all playing the same, you know, kind of country and that sort of 50s and 60s, the show band music. This is so, Radio Aaron. Yeah, Radio Aaron. Yeah. And we would dance to that, and then when that was finished, a man called Andy Barn had an accordion. And I feel there was a fiddle too, but I can't remember who played the fiddle, but then they played, and the desks were pushed back. You know, and if there was any kind of gathering, I remember my mother's cousin, I was telling this to people recently too, about the island. We were talking about how so many of them emigrated. My mother had, um, she had three aunts and two uncles that emigrated to Bayonne, New Jersey. My grandfather was actually born in Bayonne, in New Jersey. And his parents, his father was from the island. His mother, my great-grandmother, was from McGilligan in County Derry. And I'm only kind of making this up as, as I, I look at different things and that he was born in 1876. And I presume that they met in America, you know, and then on the census, there's no children for a number of years. So she must have come back without her husband. That's the only thing I can... Because why would there be no children? And then yeah. there was like 
one every year <laughs> once he got back. Right. For what I don't know, was there seven or eight? I would need to count up how many was in it. But she obviously came back with this child to Oye Island. Now, I know that the, the difference wasn't great because where she was from, McGilligan, there was probably there was no electricity or nothing like that. So she wasn't that long out there. But she came back to the island to her mother-in-law. Right. Yeah. Can you believe yeah. that? Yeah. And she would have to come on a boat with this baby who was my grandfather. And um, then eventually her husband came back and they reared their family there. And my mother used to say to me that her, her father, my grandfather, wanted Granny, my mother's mother, to emigrate to America and she never would. Isn't it funny? The things that people do in the past have a huge effect on the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we, if she had emigrated <clears throat> with him, we would not be where, here. Where would Daniel would You know, be? <laughs> we, we would not, my yeah. mother would not have met yeah. my father, you know. Yeah. Whereas, you know, they could have gone, my mother could have gone to America because her father was born in America. Yes. And uh, so it's, it's strange. And I can remember, to going back to the school, I remember a cousin of my mother's, Dominic McDevitt. He lived in America. I remember him coming home one time and he had... He must have bought drinking, they had a party in the school. And I can remember being at this party as a wee boy. Now, I don't even know, was it in the 60s or the early 70s? Was my father alive? Was he, had he died? But I remember being in and all the people in the school at this party. And then the next day, it seems like the next day when we were leaving the island, Dominic was going back to America. And the island is, the, the pier is in a place called the Spink. And the, 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 the sort of rocks go up and then you can stand up, the steps come down, but you stand up on a height. And I remember every single person on the island standing to wave cheerio to this man that was going back to America. And I was thinking recently that that must have been a common factor and a great sense of sadness because mm. I remember people crying. And I think them days, the old women especially, I think they cried on command. Right. You know, yeah. it was kind of... Like, like they did at the yeah, wakes. You know, and there were obviously the people sad, but it seemed, mm. I, my memory was there was loads of people crying because he was going away. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And of course, it was different in those days. There was no WhatsApp and... Oh, no, not at all. I <laughs> no mean, a lot of media. people went yeah. away and never came back. I mean, I, my mother used to tell about her uncle Charlie that my, my grandmother was in, in the island and somebody came into the house and said to her, they called her Marigat. Her name was Margaret, but they called her Marigat. And somebody came in and they said, Marigat, there's a man coming up the road and he has a limp and he has a case with him. She says, that'll be our Charlie from America. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Yeah, yeah. You know, th- th- She didn't know he was coming, but yeah. she says, that'll be our Charlie <laughs> from America. And it was him. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I do think the stories and... and the, the the island too was was amazing because like they had no connection with the out on the mainland with the mainland on an on a day to day basis but on the mainland there was places where they called the mark and it was a piece of land that every house on the island had a mark so when we went down we would stand on my uncle or my grandmother's mark. And they would know that they had to come out to pick somebody up. Right. Do you know? Yeah. They knew that that was, and somebody would, if somebody else saw it, they would come in and say, there's somebody on your mark. And they would go and get the cura and go out and take in who, whoever it would be, you know, because yeah. they wouldn't have the chance to, you know, I suppose this is before phones. Because uh, there was a phone in the post office, but even then, maybe you wouldn't phone. And you know the the thing when my mother died, uh, we went up to the. She was brought into the funeral home before we took her home. Uh, you know, the undertook her took her be, to get her ready to be mm-hmm. took into the house to the wake. And James, my brother, said, "Will we take her to the sound? That's what they call the place 
where you outside Critchet and Golf Club is the sound where you go into Oi. Will we take her down to the sound before we go home for one last time? So we went down to the sound with the hearse and just kind of the family went in the cars because the road is small. And um, the, Neil, this man, Neil Gallagher, from the island, he would be the oldest living person now from the island that was born in the island. He was there and we could have drove around with the hearse and we got out and he said, take her up to the mark. Right. Do you know? Yeah. And he said, this is their mark. And it was yeah. so poignant, really, that he was there and we had my mother in the hearse, in the coffin, yeah. sitting at her mark. Yeah. As if Ready to somebody go. will see her and they'll come for her yeah. from the aid. And you know, it was, yeah. it was lovely. Yeah. As I sit here sadly thinking how the years go swiftly past, my thoughts go back. To my childhood days When I was but a lad And we a happy family Gathered round our turf fire bright And the fairy tales our parents told On the cold dark wintry nights My brothers they are married now with families of their own My sister lives in the USA In her grand Long Island home She pays a visit now and then To greet us one and all Then our thoughts go back to those happy times in our home in Donegal My island home Where I was born Oh, how I miss Those days long gone The little bird I'd never more roam Forever to stay In my old island home You grew up then on the mainland and uh, your first home was it, was, it was an old style home with an open hearth. Yeah, it was the big house. It was, bought, it was built by my mother's uncle. Ned was his name, and his family, he had um, four daughters, three uh, were living at that time, uh, one day young, and Mary and Brady lived in Scotland, and Annie lived in Canada, and still in, in Canada, and uh, they owned the house, and my mother and father, I suppose, had nowhere to stay, and um, we lived there for a good few years. My mother, when when they got married... Um, for the first few years, I think, or maybe at least they went to Scotland, they lived in Forfar. You know, now John and Margaret was born in, in Ireland, but I don't know how they ended up going to Forfar and how long they lived there. Where, where was that? In Scotland. Scotland. Uh, Forfar is in Fife. Okay. It's near Perth. Okay. Between Perth and Aberdeen. Yeah. And they lived there for a, a wee while. And then... They came back, and I think my mother might have lived with my mother's, my father's mother for a wee while, and then they moved to Kincastle. And we lived in this house up until we got the council house in 1967. And, of course, I mean, you've, you've had a very glamorous life compared to, 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 to your poor mother and your poor father. Um, your mother and father met at fish gutting. They did. They yeah. lived in Shetland. Or they met in Shetland. Um, a, lot of ta- a lot of people that time went to the gutting. They went to the Tatty Hoken 
Margaret and John, even went to the Tatty Hook. Which is oh, potato you know, picking yeah, in yeah, Scotland. potato picking in, in Scotland. And they, my mother and my father was from Burtonport, which was only four miles from Kincastle, so not far from Oi. Now, whether they were aware of one another, I don't know, but I believe they had never met until they went to the Shetland Islands. And I kind of think my mother was engaged to somebody else then. Right. <laughs> I think she was. Yeah. Now, I'd need to go into her book now to read it, but I don't know how much she told in the book. Only th- I think she told what suited. <laughs> I know she was let down by a guy. Well, I don't know whether yeah. that was, but I'd say she let somebody down too, because... <laughs> well, your father she, was a very handsome man. She, she met my father and was married to him, you know, I don't know how long they were going out together, but, you know, they married. They weren't that young. You know, my mother was 29 when she got married. Which was unusual. Yeah, and my father was. There were my father was just a, a, a little, but he was, you know, he was in October. My mother was July, and he was the October to July older than her. And um, that's they were married in nineteen forty-eight, and uh, she. We don't have any. I don't know if we, we have pictures of their wedding, but we have a picture that we think is their wedding. And, but they're not dressed like in, in wedding outfits. Maybe they went, got the picture taken sometime after. But um, the Shetland Highlands then had a very, very, uh, I suppose, m- good memory for my mother's foot. Well, she would talk about the, the gutting and she'd say, oh, she's in, in your Which hands. Which is horrendous. Oh, work. for God's sake. You know, the, the salt going onto the cut wood. You know, it was cold and the... Cut the wood, be cuts, cuts on yeah. knife cuts on their fingers, and the salt then going into the wound. But we, I went back to do concerts a couple of times. But the first time I went back, to, I, I went to Shetland. I took my mother with me, right? And we went round. We went to the, you know, went to the chapel, and she went up to the the wee places where they stayed, were yeah. still there, and. Now, I don't know if the, her, the place she was in, but she went to this one particular place and she says, this is where this woman we call Mary Paddy Henyon. I'm going to talk on the way we talk at home. Okay. Uh, Mary's dead since. But she says, this is where Mary stayed. And she took the knob. It was a knob on the, from the door. And she took it back for Mary to have right. from the, the wee... As, it as was the wee houses yeah. that the fishing people stayed in. Yeah. But she said, this was Mary's. Now, hers mustn't have been there. And the knob came back from, from the Shetlands. Yeah. Uh, it was tough. And your father picking potatoes. And, I know. And my father worked, worked on then farms. on farms. And I remember my mother, when we would drive then, a lot of the time, we would go over to Scotland and we would go over on the boat from Belfast or Larne, depending on, to Stranraa, Cairn Ryan. And there was one particular, when we'd be driving up, every time we passed this one particular gate in Girvan, my mother would say, that's the farm that we worked on. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's the farm. And the gate was just a big iron gate. But they went up, you know, they worked up and, you know, as I said, up in Forfar. And my my father's brothers, there was, he had came from a big family and uh, they all worked you know, on on farms and labouring. And my father did that up until 1967. And I heard Margaret saying recently that he came home in 67 and he wasn't going to go back. They felt that he'd be able to manage at home. Margaret, I suppose, and John were a bit older and they were maybe earning as well at the time. And uh, he came home. And we went into the house in 67, the new house. Council House. Mm. Maybe he came home in the early in 68. I can't just get that right. But he died like in the following August. You know? And he was away most of, Absolutely. of your childhood. Yeah. I mean, you, you obviously wrote the book with my mother. I think, like, Margaret tells the story about uh, she was listening to Mammy talking to somebody and she said that... They were married for 19 years, but they only lived together for 18 months or something. Isn't that remarkable? But yeah. Margaret didn't hear it right, and she thought 
that Mammy was saying that they lived together before they got married. <laughs> <laughs> and she nearly had a stroke <laughs> to think. <laughs> but not, yeah, not in those no, days. Not in those days. But isn't that unbelievable yeah. to be married? I mean, there were, it wasn't a long time to be married, 19 years when he mm. died. And it, and it was because there was no work in No in work. The he went to he went, and that, that, well, that wasn't just him. That was a lot of the men. And you came right down the western seaboard, and that was the case. Mm-hmm. A lot of the Mayo, and I'm sure down to Kerry as well, but a lot of the Mayo people um, were, my mother and them were friends. I mean, I remember starting out, and there was down in Achill, the Lavelles, and the Kilbans, I remember meeting them in places. The Kilbans were in Forfra. I still have contact with them. Um, we still have contact with them. And their family worked, my father and them worked for their father. He was kind of in, in charge of farms. But I remember meeting the Lavelles and saying, we worked with you. We knew your mother and father yeah. in Forfra. Yeah. So it was very common. Uh, for for men to be away and the women, I the women were very strong. You know, they were they, they did everything. The men came home to cut the turf, and set the potatoes. Now the may I don't know did they come home then again at the, in the latter part of the year to, you know, to get everything sorted or did they say, I just I I, I can't go back in my mind to know, but I know they're away most of the year. And you were only six years old when your father mm. uh, died. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you hadn't really known him. You only know. F- I, I from only, what people I tell of, you. Yeah, mm. I kind of think that I'm only going on. I do remember. Um, I remember a couple of things about him. Uh, I remember going with Jim Boyle. Jim was the owned the bakery, and he drove the bread van. Maybe he didn't own it at this time, but he ended up owning it. But he drove the van. And I remember going in the van with my father and we must have went to the bus and I feel it was in Crawley. I don't know why I feel it was Crawley, which is about, it's near where Leo's Tavern, where Enya and Clannad, Moya Bren and them are from. And I f- remember that and my mother, or my father getting out to the bread van and going on the bus. Now, I must have been very small then, but I... I can remember that. But the majority of what I remember is about his death and the, you know, whether the stories are recounted, you know, that that's where I remember that. I do remember being out, I mean, the sense of children. I remember being out playing cowboys and Indians and shooting the people coming to the wake. You know, you know, this, when we did, we're not supposed to say that now. You were so young. But, you know, that, so I was obviously, and like people say, it must have affected me greatly. You know, it affected the others. Yeah. Because I really did not realise, you know, it it didn't, I I don't think it had any, Mm -hmm. you know, effect on me. Yeah. I mean, James was 10 and it did definitely from there on. I mean, your memory at 10 is much greater, you know, than... I, my. So your mother then uh, took, she took she played the role of she your, took your mother then. and father yeah. and yeah. Um, after I suppose I don't know how long it took her to you know to really get get the strength mm-hmm. you know I'm sure there was a period when she was in bad shape but <clears throat> I kind of don't. I don't. I don't have any memory of my mother not being in control. You know, yeah. um, to be honest, and I'm sure it was very hard for her. You know, because they were, they were a very happy couple. Yeah. You know that yeah. my mother would always say that. You know, and she would never entertain the thought of another man. There was one man <laughs> came one time that sort of expressed. Maybe that she should... An interest. And she should, you know, maybe get married or... I don't know what way he put it, but anyway, the door was open quickly. <laughs> yeah, she, I, I remember telling that story. Yeah. yeah. Out you go. Out you go. Yeah. There, was no, there was no go there. Yeah. It was a chappy, uh, happy uh, childhood. I, I, I have... Yes, I had a very happy childhood. Because even you were the youngest. That. And then you see... My mother, 
James left when he was only 13. We had a, my mother's cousin, we called him Uncle Willie. Willie McDavid was a, sh- a very, very uh, well-known uh, chef here in, in Dublin. And he, at that time, he was the head chef in the Kildare Street Club. He had been the head chef in the Royal Marine, I think, in Dunleary and many places. And James had a great interest in cooking. And I think Willie might have known that. And he went to Dublin and started working with Willie and became a chef. So he was only 13. Kathleen was... Um, what do we see? Kathleen's, I think, three years older than James. So they all went away very young to work, you know. So they were starting to go away. Kathleen had gone to Scotland. I don't know what age she was. So they were nearly all away by the time, I suppose, I was 10 or maybe 11. So you were... Working. Not all away, all the time. But I was... We were on our own you and a lot. My, you my and mother, mother. Yeah, 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 in the house. Yeah. And of course, it's obviously well known the bond you have with your mother, and and it it goes back to to those days. Yes, yes. And she you encouraged know. you as a child. She to did. She was always get up on the stage. Yeah, she was always very encouraging. She was always, um, even if somebody came in, you were put up standing with your back to the fireplace, and you would sing. Right. You know, Kathleen made the tea, and I sang, and you know. But um, and she, Margaret, she encouraged Margaret too. You know, yeah. she was very, very, you know, um, open to this kind of strange life of music. Why that was, I don't know. But maybe she just loved the music. There was a great, Oe was a great place for singing. And my, my, my mother's people and my father's people, my father apparently was a very good singer. I can I don't remember, but I remember Auntie Mary singing. Um, I remember singing at her uh, her son's wedding. A mother's love is a blessing. I remember singing that. She was my father's youngest sister. My my mother's um, next brother to her own, who lived in Carlisle. He was a super singer. You know, he had a very very deep voice. He sang Old Man River, and I remember him singing the Croppy Boy, and you know, a really really you know, top class. So it's in the family. Yeah. yeah. And and all my, 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 my cousins on my father's side and my mother said, they're all great singers, you know. So maybe it wasn't so alien that, yeah. you know, singing was there. But my mother definitely encouraged me. And we used to go out to, you know, different things. There'd be singing competitions in the Bartonport Festival and she'd put you up, go on up and sing now there and, uh, any chance that she got, uh, yeah, and 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 so it, it was, it was just there, and that was it. And you mentioned Margaret uh, a few times there, and Margaret, of course, is Margot mm. to 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 the fans, and yeah. uh, she became a child star as well. She was a yeah, she, Margaret she was, was in a band while Mar- still in school. The keynote. Margaret was only about thirteen. Um, I. I don't really know. I suppose Condi and, and I don't know who was it came to the house to, they owned the keynotes and um, to see what Margaret, the new Margaret sang, maybe the, she had sung somewhere with them to see what she come out at weekends or whatever. And uh, I mean, she was still at school and uh, in the, in the tech in Lahnewer and um, she, she was singing from 13, yeah. <clears throat> and obviously... Big influence on on you. Had a huge, huge success. I mean, yeah. you know, when you think back to it, um, it's it's very unusual, I suppose, for two people out of the one house to have success that we like. We were lucky to have. <clears throat> and um, I mean, I remember going to dances with Margaret, and and there were, I mean, there was. It was just to me, it was like thousands of people at them. You know, it was in the in the day when the dance halls were huge. You know, and the people just flocked to to the to the dances. You know, it was incredible. And I and she had a great career. You know, at the time, and you know, did everything that you could possibly do um, in her her to her lifetime. And were you were you aware of? You know that you had a sister who was 
a big star because it, well, not every family yeah. had, had, had this star. Yeah, I don't know how. I don't know what. Uh, we're very aware that she was. I suppose what she was doing, and, and you'd hear the songs on the radio, and we knew it was different to most. And I mean, going on the late late show was a huge thing. You know, I can remember her being on the late late show. And um, Granny, poor Granny, you know, she wasn't sure whether the people in the television could see her or not. She wasn't just too sure. And, and there was nothing wrong with her. She was very, it wasn't like she had, what you know, any memory loss or anything. But she was, she was a wee bit cautious with them. And She thought, she uh, thought yeah, people could see she her. She wasn't sure. Yeah, she, she wasn't yeah. sure. Because Huey Green used to always wave, you know, opportunity knocks. So she... She'd wave back. <laughs> she, she, she wasn't sure. But Margaret said to her granny, now she says, you be sure now that you put on something nice for me being on the late literature. So I don't know what granny had on her, but somebody told Margaret what she would have had on, you know. But she said, you know, she said, that's Huey Green. He can see me after all. <laughs> he was waving every, every night. <laughs> But uh, it was a big thing. It was a yes, big thing. Yeah. I mean, appearing thing. on the Late Late Show back in those days oh, was like winning the I All-Ireland. remember people going away to meet her in cars. On the way back. Aye. Like she won the All-Ireland. She won the All-Ireland. <laughs> yeah, it was a huge thing. And they came back to the house and they were all in. Bonfires. Because she had been on the Late Late Show. That was how big it was. Yeah. yeah you know? Yeah. Um, you know, we take a lot for granted now, but it was a huge thing. And, you know, Gay used to tell the story. And, and even if you... Margaret often tells it, and I don't know whether it was live on the TV it was done or whether it was before, but he, he, Gay said about Dunlow, oh, she says, Gay, I'm not from Dunlow, she says, I'm from Kincastle, you know. Well, you so nice. I, yeah. it was yeah. like yeah. Dunlow is six miles from Kincastle, I suppose Gay, with his connection to Dunlow, it was the biggest town in the area, and it was no big mistake. But like corrected for us, King. we weren't from Dunlow. We were from Kincastle. A big, big difference. <laughs> You've certainly put put, put Kincastle <laughs> on the map. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, then later on, you would follow follow um, Mar- Margaret Margot. On, yes, on I I went travelled with Margaret in our band for two years, and you know, I suppose that opportunity it was. There was no demands on me at all, but I, I got to see a lot, you know, got to see the from behind the yeah. the scenes. And I suppose I felt that there was nothing about it that I needed to do that I wouldn't enjoy, you know. And uh, I then, you know, made a record, first record in 83. And um, that's really where I... That's when I started. I mean, the time with Margaret was great because I said no demands and it was, you were just going about, you know, you were, yeah. there was a good crowd or that was, it was down to her. Um, <clears throat> but when I started my own then, it was really tough, yeah. you know, starting out. Um, it was really, I made the record in 83 and it wasn't really till 86 that things started to yeah. to take shape, you know. And before that, um, just in your your uh, teenage years, um, y- you know, you you kind of thought about maybe career in was it teaching or accountancy? I, or? Well, I I loved I liked school, um, and I loved accountancy, economics, and maths. I absolutely loved them subjects. And um, I mean, I liked French and English too, but more, more that I just loved anything to do with figures and numbers. And I suppose I thought that I would do teaching, maybe business, you know, the accountancy and that kind of thing. And I did go to the go. I was, I was a, I was a bad exam um, candidate. I I didn't figure good in exams at all. Yet I could do everything, you know, to do with to do with accountancy. I could, well, I couldn't now, but I could just rhyme off the theorems and economics, like they were, they are a father, you know. Yeah. Um, And I just loved it, and and maths. I was able to 
counting my head and, and I loved accountancy. But when I came to the exams, I just, you know, and this COVID time, I, d- I was thinking, you know, but the people getting, the young people getting the opportunity uh, of the assessments or the exams. And I thought, wasn't it fantastic that you had the opportunity, that your teachers knew what you were capable of? You know, and the teachers do know what every student and uh, is capable of. They did then, and maybe even more so now, that, that they would be, you know, the, maybe the smaller classrooms or whatever, and um, you know that they they can give people assessments and get them across the line. So I got into the regional college in Galway with the view I suppose to transfer to doing a degree course. There was no degree courses, I think. It was all, um, what do they call them? Diplomas. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't a degree course. And then you could transfer. But sure, I only stayed three months. Yeah, you didn't settle. I didn't settle. And I went with Margaret. Um, I didn't settle. And, if, you know, I, I've spent my life on the road since. Mm. But I really was not happy in Galway. Was and it I don't college think it was, life? Or I, was it? I just... College life is very different to school. Mm. You know, when you go to college, and it's probably the same now, you're, at school, there's somebody always looking out for you. I feel the teachers then were, were kind of always bringing you along, you know, but when we went to the college, I just felt they didn't care. It was up to you to do your own, your own thing. Time. Now they probably did care to say that is wrong, mm-hmm. but you know that. But they weren't as involved, you know. And it was lectures, and if you turned up, you turned up, and if you didn't, I don't think anybody, you know. And did you turn up? Oh, I did turn up. I was. I did. But you know, I did German. Why I did German, I have no idea. I mean, I did French at school. You're awful stupid when you're young, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think I, I think I was. Why would you do German when maybe I didn't? Maybe there's no French in the college. I there must have been, you know. But anyway, I didn't. I wasn't delighted with myself in Galway. I used to go home every weekend, you know. Which is quite a trek. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and you, you hitched home, did you? Did. How, how, a few times. how many hours? Oh God, it'll take you forever. Yeah, yeah. You know. So by Christmas you had decided. I'd be, you were, you Christmas I decided that. See, I suppose even before that, Eddie, in my head that the music had got in. I I always thought I wouldn't, you know, mm. you know, because I would have seen Margaret and you know thinking you know late nights and all that kind of thing. But I remember one night my. People say to me, what was it? When did you know you wanted to sing? Um, I was in Dunlow, the, the Austin, the Rosson, which is the Waterfront Hotel now. Uh, Austin, the Rosson was a great going place and there was a, a lounge bar in it and they were big at that time. And like everybody was able to go. There was no children. It wasn't like children weren't allowed. So we used to go up at the weekends, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, music and dancing. And like, my, my, my mother went and my mother certainly, she never drank or anything. So it wasn't, it was just a social thing. And the Murrays would play uh, most of the time um, Tony Boyle and Eddie Quinn played some of the time too and Pat McFadden God rest him but the Murray's family uh, played there and they would get people up to sing and I can remember one night being up singing and I was singing I think I was singing The Boys in the County Armagh <laughs> and I was really delighted with the opportunity to do this and there was people dancing and they were smiling and they were singing along. And I remember thinking in that moment, wouldn't this be a great way to spend your life? I'm happy doing it. They're happy listening to it. They're dancing about there. Isn't this a great thing? So from there, that moment, I probably was maybe 16 then, I think. From that moment, this was in my head. Uh, so I suppose the, the thing of the three months wasn't wasn't odd because it was, I, I went, but was I really yeah. going in my heart? But I remember 
I was staying with uh, the Nugents and Renmore Park in Galway. God rest Pat Nugent and her husband, Sean. And Pat was a very direct individual, you know, shot from the hip. No, there was no, no pulling back. And um, I came back after the Christmas holidays and I would come in. <laughs> Pat was there, oh, she's your back. I remember she was standing at the sink, whatever she was doing at the sink. And I came in and I says, Pat, I'm not going to stay, Pat. I'm only back to get me things. I says, I'm going to sing. <laughs> and she didn't, I don't think she turned around, or maybe she turned around, but she still had her hands in the sink and she said, would you not be better to learn something first? <laughs> <laughs> I can still remember. Would you not be better to learn something first? <laughs> and that was coming from the good part in her heart but I, I used to when we started doing well and they would always come to see us Sean still alive you know when we go to Galway we'd see Sean Pat died a number of years ago quite young actually but I, I used to say tell the story of the stage about Pat telling me would you not be better to learn something but I can remember that so I, I that was I travelled then at Margaret for the two years and and you also, that Christmas, you went to Philomena Begley. I went to Philomena too. Looking for advice. Poor Philly. And I think Philly might have been pregnant with um, her youngest, girl, Carol. And I went in to the house to Philly. And she was baking bread, flour up to the elbows. So eventually I braced the story with her. I said, Philly, what do you think? And she said, ah, oh, she says, stick to the books. Stick to the books. Because she knew how hard it she, they knew how hard. is. And I think it was harder for the women. Yeah. Because they were in a man's world at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, they were away in a van with seven or eight men. They'd be, they'd be only, the only girl. You know, it was tough. Mm. And, you know, in the back, it wasn't like, there was no luxury in it. There was nobody flying to England. They went over in the boat and, you know... Um, just it was a much tougher and you can imagine now you can go to Cork now from Dublin and couple two and a half hours or whatever three whatever length it takes down to Galway in less than two hours I mean it took four hours to go anywhere out from Dublin to the way and like if you were leaving Donegal I can remember even when I started I we used to, one Christmas it must have been Boxing night, we were playing on Dunmanway, and I was I was going to drive myself. When I got to Donegal Town, I had to pull in for sleep, <laughs> and like I wasn't even started. <laughs> yeah, because and I, you know, I was wasn't I was never fond of driving anyway. But I can remember that there was a good road, a piece of a good road outside the Abbots factory there in Donegal Town. I can remember pulling into the hard shoulder that I was that I was tired already. And you only had ten more hours. And still. I only had <laughs> done man with it. It was forever. It was forever. But you know it it was tough. Yeah. So I suppose <clears throat> that was the reality for them and the, I suppose Plus the business wasn't as good then. No, the business wasn't as good. Compared to the early days yes. of show bands and but I don't know what, people often say to me, you must have been very headstrong. And I, I would see myself as very um, relaxed, you know, calm, not a very mm. go-get-you person, but I must have been. I had great belief, you know, and I went out singing songs that I loved, you know. Yes. So I wasn't picking songs that I thought would do well. I was singing songs that I really loved, you know, and a lot of them were old. I still sang the boys in the county Armagh, you know. Um, but as I said, when we started, when I started my own, made the record in 83, and um, February 83, 9th of February, I never forget the date, to Big Tom Studios, and... Um, then got it pressed, Donegal Shore, Stand Beside Me on the A side, Donegal Shore on the B side, because Stand Beside was up-tempo. We thought it would be a better chance of getting played 
Anyway, I then started a band at home um, with some fellas, local fellas, and eventually PJ Sweeney, who was my school friend. Um, and then we would we did a few things, you know, around home, and we did weddings. And I remember the first night that we played, we had everything sung in an hour. We had two hours to do. <laughs> Everything was done. We started and did it all again, the whole thing. But um, we went to Scotland and went to England, you know. But it was it was tough enough. That we, that band was together for about a year, and then uh, Nan Moy, who had managed Margaret when I was um, with her, um, or maybe after. I, was, I knew my Nan very well. She was a friend of ours. Um, she wasn't managing Margaret and she said, well, we have a go. So Nan sort of got on board and we formed this. The first one was called the Country Fever. I said it never caught hold of the fever. <laughs> and um, then we had the grassroots. And um, that was 84 we started that. And, you know, I often think back how how different things happen. The week of the band starting, the people that were going to play with us, some a few of them dropped out. I suppose they thought there's no future in this for us. And um, I'd say about the Wednesday, I phoned Jim the Cope and Don Lowe was putting on the dance on the 15th of June. Friday night in the Austin. And I phoned Jim and I said, Jim, I says, I says, I said, we'll have to cancel the night. I says, just things are not working out. And I can remember Jim saying, well, he says, the posters is up now. He says, you'll have to come. And I often wonder if Jim said, oh, well, listen, don't worry about it. Would you have continued? What would have happened? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember then on the night, there were seven or eight musicians on the stage. I didn't know who some of them were. Because <laughs> so some of the other lads got somebody, someone, one got one and one got another and the whole lot landed. Right. And I, I didn't know who some of them were at all. But it worked out okay. It worked out okay. And then we, we eventually got, I suppose, the, the few together that became kind of the ones that stood with us. <clears throat> Ronnie came in. Ronnie Kennedy and... Um, Tommy Shanley and uh, who was on the drums at the time? God, it was terrible when you can't. Oh, Jared Gallagher was on the drums from, and uh, Roy Roy Campbell. Roy was in Scotland, and you know we did all right, you know, for what we did. But the crowds were very small. We just could not make any money, you know. I know that that's a. Uh you had your van repossessed at yeah. one stage. Um, there were often more people on the stage than there were in the, in, in the, in the venues. Yeah. Six people in Julian's midfield in, in Mayo. It was, you know what it was like? If somebody went to the toilet, you'd nearly go out with them to make sure they came back in. <laughs> because you couldn't afford to lose them. <laughs> Honest to God, it was shocking. And I remember that night, John Julian... After, when we were finished, I mean, sure, they made nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. But I remember John saying to me, well, he says, do you know, he says, if you don't get on, he says, there'll be no justice. Because we sang for the whole night yeah. to the yeah. six people. <laughs> the show must go on. You know? Yeah. And the same in the sportsman's arms in Ballyhay in Charleville. That's, that's right. Yeah. Josephine, I remember, did the door. And it was a big, long... Um, Thing. I could see the door, you know, and you'd be looking at the door to see what it opened because we were getting the money in the door, you know. Okay. <clears throat> and they got the bar. There was no guarantees. And honest to God, there was very few. We actually spent the money on the chip shop in Limerick on the way back to get chicken chips. <laughs> that was it. That was all. Shocking. But obviously, you had the ambition to to, to keep going, and and uh... and I asked different people. I remember going to managers at the time. <clears throat> not going to name any of them now, but some of them were as big as they could be, and none of them gave me any encouragement. You know, 
absolutely none of them. They couldn't see anything They in could you. see nothing. And I suppose they thought that business was gone. Mm. And I just thought, well, everybody didn't die at one time. The, the people that liked that kind of music five years ago, they're, they're, they, they didn't all die together. And they didn't all think, I don't like that anymore. It's just whatever's after happening, the transition. I think what happened was that we went from the dance halls to the lounges to no drink to drink. It was a whole, it was, a, and the discos came in. And I don't know, I don't know what happened. But anyway, um, I recorded, we were doing better in England and Scotland than we were in Ireland. The only place we were doing well in Ireland was Arnmore Island with, with Andrew and Mary Early and the Pier Bar. We'd go in there and we'd get our 300 euros, or not euros, it wasn't euros, then it was punts or pounds maybe it was, even before punts. And that was a fortune, like, you know, to get that much. <clears throat> and um, and that was an Arnmore and there'd be only like a hundred and whatever... 150, maybe 120 people, but most to charged whatever, three pound or whatever, and that covered. So, um, I, we got the chance to be at the, I remember going to Roundwood Park with Margaret, and oh God, it was a huge festival in London, Eddie, there was, there'd be 60 or 70,000 people at it. And in 1984, I was doing the places in London, so these people were aware of me. So they gave me a spot at half past 12 on the Irish Festival in 1984. Now, there wouldn't be that many in, but you were still on. People are just coming You know, in. you were still on. Yeah. So in 1985, I was on at three o'clock. You were moving up. <laughs> and in 1986, I closed the show. Right, you were the headline act. And you know... It's quite incredible, you know. I, th these things stick in my mind because going from that was, that was a huge step up. Mick Clerken had seen me at the festival. Of Ritz Records. Yeah, of Ritz Records. And I don't know who, I, I don't know, was it Bill Delaney that told him that I had recorded The Boy from Donegal, that, that tape, don't think I don't know, maybe it was an album too, but I think it was only a tape. And he was selling the records. He had a record, um, I don't know, was it a distribution or a shop? Or the markets were big in, in London too, Wembley Market. I remember going to Wembley Market to sign. There was albums too, um, you know, sign records on a Sunday morning. So he must have said I was selling a lot of tapes, you know. So Mick then obviously became aware and he, um, I would imagine approached Nan or whether Nan approached him, I don't know. But the decision was made to record the album with Ritz, which was called The Two Sides of Daniel O'Donnell, one being country and one being Irish. And that came out in 80, I would say 84, 85, that, you know, 84, I would imagine, and 85. <clears throat> and without my realising it, that was getting a lot of interest. But we still weren't seeing people at dances or anything. Um, and I had re-recorded my Donegal show for that. That was on that record. I know it's not right Reminiscing tonight Of days that are gone And returning no more For the girl I dream of Has another man's love Far, far away On a Donegal shore But why should I 
should I care? For she's happy or there. She may have children. She may be wealthy or poor. But I can't help my dreams of what might have been. If I stayed at home on my Donegal shore, now it's winter time there. All the trees will be bare, and the rain clouds will darken my native Gidor. But if that girl I could hold, every raindrop would be gold. It could fall all around us on my Donegal shore. And the pirate radio stations were really big then. They were huge. They were star. They were really. Taken hold, and I believe that on the other place that played my Donegal show was Falshishja on RT One Radio late at night. I think it was the weekend. It was on. Mm-hmm. Not sure. Maybe it was every night, but it was on very late. Falshishja, and the um, there a pirate radio station started playing my Donegal show, and it just I didn't realize it. But I remember at the end of 84, we were playing on the Ardree in Manchester and Loretta, who did our fan club and worked with us for up until a few years ago, for over 30 years, her and her sisters had come to see the Brendan Shane when we did the show with Brendan Shane and the Dominion on Tottenham Court Road, the Peggy Jones Carousel concerts, did them every Christmas and Patrick's Day, huge in, in the UK. And we were on that. She had lots of acts on, but Brendan headlined. And I met Loretta. And Loretta then and them came everywhere to see us. Uh, and they were down in Manchester, and Loretta was doing the fan club by this stage. And I remember saying to Loretta, I don't think I'm going to continue. You know, it's just too hard. This was probably in November. It's not, we, I just can't make it work. And, um, remember 85, was it? Aye, 85, because... You know, I was going to be 24 in the December and I was looking at people that was at school with me. Some of them were married. You know, some of them had cars. Most of them probably had cars. Well, not maybe most, but a lot of them would have cars and some of them had families and jobs. And I really had very little from my financial point of view. So I had, I was thinking I'd have to do something else. You know, we just can't go on like this. And I went to see Mick. On Friday the 13th of December. Now, if you're superstitious, you'll know that date is not the date to be making decisions. But I went to tell him that I thought that it was, I was, it wasn't working out for me, you know, that it just... So he said that they were getting good reaction to the record and that maybe... We should try. I mean, Nan and me knew that we couldn't go forward, you know. Yeah. And I suppose Nan, in a way, was disappointed at the time, but I think she knew. And we're still, Nan and I are great friends, you know, and we often talk about, she says, sure, we, we, could, we were going nowhere, you know. We didn't have the money or the know-how or the... We just didn't know people. And you need to know people too, you know, because it is an industry after all, yeah. you know. And if a string is pulled up there, you know, on a curtain, the curtain opens or closes, but the person nearest to the string is not near the end of the curtain. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's what it's like. Yeah. You need to be know somebody that has pulled the string. Right. Yeah. So anyway, if you can imagine that analogy. <laughs> now you probably press the button and the curtain opens. But... Um, 
Mick said to me, I suppose he was didn't know where I was. Did I have contracts signed with anybody or what way was I tied? And I didn't have any contract. I had no ties. So he said, well, he says, I think maybe, he says, if we just, you know, revamped your band and just took a different approach, he said, and tried it for a while to see. So the decision was made that the band I had, we would finish up, and we did in the January 86. And um, going on then to March 86, we went back out. And that's when Billy Burgoyne joined up. And I think John Staunton was with us that time too. Or if he wasn't, he came shortly after. Tony Murray was in it. Now, John wasn't there. That was a few people that came and went until we got settled with a group. But we went over and our first show was in the St. Cyprian's Club in Broccoli in Kent. I think, you know, in a way, the band that I had let go was actually better than the band I had then because the band I had were better practised. Do you know, we were tighter. So it took us a while. And I remember somebody that that I knew and they said, God, I don't know if the band is as good as your other band, you know. But, I mean, obviously they became a super band because they were brilliant musicians when we got settled. And we came home and we were playing in the Milford Inn in Donegal. First, it was a Friday night. Now, bearing in mind that when we finished, there was probably 50 people at most, or maybe 30 people, at the last dance we did. This was January, and now we were on probably the middle of March. The Milford Inn was absolutely packed. And that, I always say, it was like somebody switched on a light and that light never went out. Now don't worry, this story is just beginning. We'll be back next week with part two of our interview with Daniel O'Donnell, where he tells us all about his breakthrough into the big time. For now, though, this has been My Country Life, a Sunday World podcast. This episode was produced by Ian Malini, and the theme music is Rose Gold Renegades by Jesse Frizzell. If you enjoyed this episode, do consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm Eddie Rowley, and this is My Country Life. <laughs>